0: Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host of this podcast, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as a professor at Colorado Christian University. I'm really thankful that you take the time to listen to the Understanding Christianity podcast. And over the past basically six months, I've been preaching through the Gospel of John, And this past week, I was in John chapter 10, and I didn't have a lot of time on a Sunday morning uh, to really dive into the doctrine of election and predestination just because of the nature of time constraints and also uh, trying to be sensitive to a mixed audience and and having a congregation where uh, there may be a lot of questions. And so I decided on this podcast I'd really just delve into uh, this issue in a little bit more depth because it's become so clear to me through going through the Gospel of John, just how clear Jesus is on this doctrine. And it's a very controversial doctrine. It's very confusing. It causes a lot of issues. It causes a lot of emotions. People tend to get very emotional when the doctrine of election or predestination is talked about. And there's also Differing views on the doctrine of election. Um, really, there's three views I've come to understand. Formerly I'd really thought there were only two views, but in understanding um, the traditional Southern Baptist view, the corporate view of election, that's really the third view. So let me just in this podcast articulate the three views. And then we'll just dive in the Gospel of John, and I'm just going to just give my thoughts and some teachings that I've seen uh, from Jesus' words himself. Um, traditionally, really since the Synod of Dort and the Remonstrance during the Protestant Reformation, uh, there have emerged two primary major views of the doctrine of election. Uh, there's the Arminian view that Jacob Arminius articulated, and his followers and the remonstrance, the five points of Arminianism, uh, set forth. And it's really what we would call the conditional view of election or the foreseen faith view or the Arminian view, however you want to, to label it. But here's basically a definition of that view. Both Arminians and Calvinists and even the traditional Southern Baptists have to come to grips with Ephesians chapter 1 that does teach that before the foundation of the world, God chose believers in Christ. And so the election took place before creation. That's a non-negotiable. That's an agreed-upon point on all views of election, that somehow it happened. God did this choosing. God did this electing, this predestinating before creation. The question then becomes, okay, how did God do it? What's the basis for God doing it? What's the grounds for God doing it? That's really where the arguments and the differences come into play. So the Arminian conditional foreseen faith view says this. Before creation, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, God had foreknowledge. God had knowledge beforehand of what sinners would do when presented the gospel. So God looks down the corridors of time to a point in time when he sees a person either accepting or rejecting the gospel. And based upon what God sees in advance, if God sees a person accepting Christ or a person rejecting Christ, based upon what God sees, he then ratifies that decision of the sinner, or he elects based upon what he sees. So if God sees somebody using their free will to choose Christ, God elects that person. If God looks down and sees a person never accepting Christ, then God does not elect that person. And so ultimately, there are conditions that a person has to meet in order for God to choose that person. What are the conditions that God has to see? The conditions are repentance and faith. God has to see a person repenting of sin or believing in Jesus in order for that person to be chosen. And so we call this conditional election because there are conditions that have to be met by the sinner in order for God to choose them. Those conditions are repentance and faith. And so when God sees that, has that foreknowledge of that action, that choice, then based upon that, God chooses so the foundation of choosing is foreseen faith, foreseen repentance. That's the traditional classic Arminian position. The Calvinistic position is that God sovereignly chooses a set number of sinners. Before the foundation of the world, simply according to his good pleasure and will. It's an unconditional election in the sense that there are no conditions that a sinner has to meet in order for God to choose or predestine or elect that sinner. God simply chooses based upon the sovereignty of his own will. No sinner deserves salvation God is not obligated to choose or predestine anyone, but God chooses to predestine and elect a great number, a multitude that no one can count, and the rest he simply passes over and leaves in their state of sin. So God actively works, elects, does all things necessary for the elect, for a group of people. He does not have to work in those who are not elect. He doesn't have to work... um, disobedience in them. He doesn't have to work rebellion in them. They're already rebellious. They're already sinful because of Adam's sin that they've inherited. So God doesn't have to do anything special to make them more of a sinner than they already are. He simply overcomes that in the elect and unconditionally chooses a great number of people for salvation. The rest he leaves in their state of sin. He owes no one salvation. So God is not unjust in choosing some While not choosing others, God is being merciful to his elect when everybody deserves hell. That is the unconditional view of election or what we would call the traditional Reformed or Calvinistic view of election. And then there's the third view, the corporate view of election. I've dealt with this on previous podcasts, especially the one on the, the, that Steve Gaines, uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, articulated that view very well, and I talked about how I believe that's come really from Herschel Hobbes. Um, others would argue that that was from the early church. Um, really, we see this whole corporate view of election that God chose a plan of salvation that those who would use their free will to be in Christ would then, at a point in time, be in Christ And they would be part of the plan that God set up in eternity past to have an elect people. And so God, in a sense, chose the plan first, chose Christ to be the the elect one, chose those who would be in Christ, no particular person in in particular. But then at a point in time, uh, sinners would use their free will to choose Christ. And once they choose Christ, uh, they get in on the plan. That's the best way I can understand it. Um, and maybe I've misunderstood the corporate view, and I, I've had some conversations with those that hold to that, that are saying that I'm, I really don't understand their view, and maybe I need to do a better job of understanding it. But let's just go to the text of Scripture, especially in the, the Gospel of John, because that's where I've been hanging out the past six months, and it's just become so clear. And I've, I've received a lot of feedback and a lot of um, texts and emails from people in our church that are so thankful that the doctrines of grace have been so clearly taught in the gospel of john it's it's helping them understand these truths even deeper and so this past sunday um, i preached through john chapter 10 now a few weeks ago uh, I've, i've been breaking john chapter 10 up actually into three sermons because there's so much meat there i don't think you can get it all in just one sermon because it's so deep but jesus talks about his sheep This whole metaphor of him being the good shepherd of the sheep and how the sheep hear his voice, the sheep follow him, he knows the sheep, he lays down his life for the sheep. This whole intimate relationship between shepherd and sheep, that Jesus knows the sheep. And he intimately calls them by name. The sheep hear his voice. They don't hear the voice of a stranger. The sheep follow Jesus. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. He has other sheep that aren't of this fold that he's got to bring into one. So there'll be one shepherd, one flock. This whole idea that God has given to Jesus sheep. And so there's this intimate relationship between shepherd and sheep. And, and as you get to John chapter 10, verse 26, And I didn't have a lot of time to deal with this on Sunday morning, so I want to deal with it here. You have a very startling statement from Jesus. Almost if you you just pass over it, you don't quite get the emphatic declaration that Jesus is making here. So all through John chapter 10, he's been talking about the shepherd, the sheep, laying down his life for the sheep, knowing the sheep, calling the sheep. And then you get to verse 26. Actually, let's, let's look at verse 25. Jesus is talking to these Jewish people who were not believing in him. And in verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now let's carefully weigh Jesus' words here. Why are they not believing that he's the Messiah? Why are they not believing that he is the shepherd of the sheep? Why are they not believing? Well, Jesus says the reason you're not believing is because. There's the because there. The reason, because you are not among my sheep. Now, if they had been sheep, if they had been among the elect, if they had been given by the Father to Jesus in eternity past, what would they do? As sheep, what do the sheep do? When the shepherd calls, when the shepherd shows up, when the shepherd presents himself as the Messiah, what has Jesus been saying all along? The sheep hear my voice. I know my sheep. My sheep follow me. My sheep are going to believe. But why are these Jewish people not believing? They're not believing because they are not sheep. Now, we would be tempted, if we didn't know any better, to turn Jesus' words around. We would almost intuitively in our human nature think that here's how you become a sheep. You become a sheep by believing. In other words, you believe in order to become a sheep. But that's not what Jesus says. He says it the opposite way around. The reason they're not believing is because they're not sheep. If they had been sheep, if they had been among the elect, if they had been given by the Father to Jesus, they would be believing. So they are evidencing by their unbelief that they are not sheep, they're not among the elect, that they are indeed goats. Which leads us to make a deduction. If there are those that are not believing because they're not sheep, then Jesus has not Been given all people from the Father. In this passage of Scripture, there are those that have not been given to Jesus by the Father. Because if they had been given to Jesus by the Father, they would be believing. But they're not sheep, they have not been given. And notice down in verse. 29 my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand the father has given sheep to jesus now we've seen this taught all throughout the gospel of john in john six thirty-seven, jesus says all that the father gives me will come to me And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives me will come. Now here in John chapter 6, this is the feeding of the 5,000, the bread of life discourse, where Jesus has just made the first I am statement. I am the bread of life. And he simply defines this group that will come to him as the all. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So, the Father has given Jesus an all. And what will happen with these all that Jesus gives? They will come. It doesn't say they might come, they may come. They will come. And when they do come, Jesus will not cast them out. Now, simply in John chapter 6, they're called the all. This group, this subgroup out of all humanity that the Father has given to Jesus. In John chapter 10, there's a little bit more definition to who this group is. They're called the sheep. Jesus says, My Father has given them to me, is greater than all. My Father who's given them to me. Who's the them? In the context of John chapter 10, verse 29, that Jesus is speaking about, well, it's the sheep. Because right back in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Why were these Jewish people not hearing his voice, not following him? Jesus says, because they're not among his sheep. So there is a group of people that have not been elected by the Father, and if they had been elected by the Father, what would they do? They would be sheep, and they would hear the voice of the shepherd, they would follow, they would come. But they're not coming, they're not following, they're not believing. Why? Because they're not sheep. And this is the words of Jesus. Jesus talks about the Father giving to him sheep, giving to him a people that have been given to him before the foundation of the world. It's interesting, back in John chapter 8, verse 47, and I didn't spend a lot of time on this as well, but back in John chapter 8, 47, he's probably talking to the same group of people. It's a different occasion. Uh, this is during uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, where Jesus gives the second I am statement, I am the light of the world. He, he talks about um, having living water flowing from him. It's this whole... Um, feast of tabernacles had a seven-day water ceremony where the priest would carry the water in golden pitchers from the pool of salam and come back and anoint it on the altar and so jesus uses that metaphor to say that i am the true source of living water they also would light these huge candles as a way to light up the temple complex and jesus stands before that and says i am the light of the world and these Jewish people were, were not believing him. Um, and then in verse chapter 8, verse 47, he says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. It's almost the same way of saying the reason you're not believing is because you're not among the sheep. It's almost a parallel statement. You have John 10 verse 26 you do not believe because you're not among my sheep why were they not believing they weren't sheep in john 8 47 why were they not hearing the words of god they were not of god and jesus goes on to say emphatically the reason they're not of god is because they are of their father the devil and that's a very strong statement that they are of their father the devil and so Jesus is looking at a group of people and saying, here's the reason why, here's the grounding, here's the absolute reason why you're not hearing me, why you're not believing me, why you're not coming to me, why you're not following me. Here's the reason. Jesus does not say the reason you're not doing this is because you have free will and you're not using it. The reason is because you don't have enough information and you need more Twice here, in John 8, 47, and in John 10, 26, Jesus gives the reason. Very clearly, the reason why you do not hear is that you're not of God. You're not believing in me because you're not among my sheep. So what's the reason? They're not sheep. They're not of God. They're not among the elect. If they had been sheep... If they had been of God, if God were their father and not the devil, what would they do? All that the father gives me will come to me. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. What's going to happen if you're a sheep? If you are a sheep that God has chosen before the foundation of the world, when the voice of the shepherd comes to you, when you hear the gospel, and when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see truth, you will come, you will hear, you will follow, and evidencing that you had been given by the Father to Jesus before the foundation of the world. Some people will not come, will not hear, will never accept Christ. And the reason why is because they're not among the elect. They were not given to Jesus by the Father before the foundation of the world. They are not sheep. They're not of his flock. They are not of God. And so Jesus clearly teaches this idea of Sovereign election. And it's very clear in the gospel of John what we've been seeing over and over again. Now, we haven't gotten to John 17 yet. That's probably gonna be, um, as I'm looking at my preaching calendar, that probably won't be until like May, but we'll get there um, as I've kind of mapped out preaching in John. But when you get to Jesus' high priestly prayer, In John chapter 17, he's going to reiterate the same teachings that he's given all along. John 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I want you to notice in verse 2, Jesus has been given authority over all flesh. That's all people. Jesus has sovereign authority over all people we could say that's the world the entirety of the world all flesh all human beings he has authority over everyone but there's a subset that's included in this giving of eternal life you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him there's that terminology again of the father giving to jesus a group in John chapter 6 we saw that all that the father gives me will come to me In John chapter 10 the father has given to Jesus sheep here Jesus gives eternal life to all whom you've given him now let's look at the specificity of this verse does Jesus give eternal life to all flesh no He has authority over all flesh. He's sovereign over all the world. But all the world and all the flesh, all people have not been given to Jesus. There's a subset. There's the whole world. And then there's a subset in that those whom the Father has given him to receive eternal life. So all throughout the Gospel of John, you see this pattern. What's the pattern? The Father has given to Jesus, a group. Sometimes it's called all. Sometimes it's called the sheep. And then there are those who have not been given by the Father to Jesus. The reason they don't hear is because they're not of God. The reason they don't believe, they're not of the flock. They're not of the sheep. And what will those who have been given by the Father to Jesus do? They will come, they will believe, they will follow. If you're not among the elect, you won't hear, you won't come, and you won't follow. Why is that? Well, because you are dead in sin. You are lost. And a non-elect person who's lost, who's dead, whose father is the devil, who's a goat, who's not of God... They're not going to believe. No matter how much arm twisting you do, no matter how much manipulation, no matter how much cajoling or any type of sales pitch, they are not going to come. Why? They're not going to come because they're not among the elect. They don't want to come. They don't have the ability to come. They will not come. Now, you say, well, why don't they want to come? Why don't they have the ability to come? Well, Jesus tells us in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come. I've talked about this numerous times. That word dunamai. No one has the power No one in and of himself or herself has the power, has the ability to come to Jesus. You just can't up and come to Christ in and of yourself. You lack the capacity, you lack the ability to come. Unless God does something to you, what must the Father do? The Father must draw you. And who's the Father going to draw? Is he going to draw everybody? If the Father draws everybody then everybody would come and everyone would be raised up on the last day because Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and I will never cast them out. And so you're left with this universalism where God is either drawing everyone and everyone comes. No evangelical believes that, that everyone will come. They don't believe in universalism, whether you're a traditional Southern Baptist or whether you're an Arminian. Nobody believes that everyone's going to come. We're not universalists. And so their answer is God draws... But humans can resist the drawing. They can resist. Now here's the question. Would God draw those who were not elect to come to himself? Does God draw everyone and allow people in their state of rebellion and depravity resist the drawing, or does God only draw his elect does God only draw those whom the Father has given to Jesus before the foundation of the world? Is God going to draw those who are not of the flock to himself? And we have to say the answer is no. God's not going to draw every single person. God is only going to draw those whom he has given to Jesus before the foundation of the world. So there's going to be a group of people that no matter how much you witness to them, how much you share the gospel, they are never going to come. And the reason why they're not going to come is because they're not among the elect. Now, we need to be very careful here. We don't know the identity of the elect or the non-elect. We are never told in the Bible to go preach the gospel only to the elect. Go preach the gospel only to those that evidence regeneration. That is hyper-Calvinism. We are told in the Bible to go preach the gospel to all creation. Go make disciples of all nations. Preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations. We have to be indiscriminate in our presentation of the gospel. We share the gospel. We preach Christ. We share our testimony. We tell the good news to everybody that we come in contact with because nowhere in the Bible are we given the identity of the elect or the non-elect. We don't know that. We're not given that permission. We're never told that. We are told to go present the gospel. But what confidence do we have? What do we know? Well, what we do know is that all that the Father gives me will come to Jesus. They will come. They will be drawn In John chapter 10, they will hear the voice. They will follow. So, when you go and share the gospel, and you go and tell the good news, and somebody that's a sinner repents and believes and comes to faith in Christ, that is evidence that they're among the elect. Now, you didn't know that before you went and shared with them. You just saw them as a lost person who needed the gospel. And when you shared the gospel with them, they heard the voice of the shepherd. The Holy Spirit drew them. They followed. They came in faith. Why did they do that? Because before the foundation of the world, the Father gave them to Jesus. At a point in time, they heard the voice of the shepherd. The Holy Spirit drew them, and they came in repentance and faith. Others that you share with, you may share multiple times and multiple times, and they reject and they reject, and they never come to faith in Christ. Why is that? Is it because they've resisted God's will? Is it because they use used their free will to say no? Or is it because they're not among the sheep? that the Father gave Jesus before the foundation of the world. Now, this is a very hard teaching because sometimes we get the emotions playing in our hearts where we tend to think, well, this is unfair. Why would God choose some and not others? We think about family members and friends that we deeply love and what if God hasn't chosen my family member? What if God hasn't chosen my friend? You know, and there's the, the wrestling of emotions that everybody goes through and I, I totally understand that and those are legitimate emotions. Those are deep, visceral emotions that we go through when we contemplate the lostness of a friend or family member that's very dear to us. But, but yet, let me just say this as gently as I can we need to allow the text of Scripture to trump or to override whatever emotions we may have. When we come to text of Scripture and we have deep visceral emotions and we struggle with those texts and we don't quite want to believe those texts, we have to step back and ask the question, what has the higher authority? The text of Scripture or my emotions of what I want the text to say? Because the Bible is going to say a lot of things that we in our human nature don't want it to say. We would prefer in our human nature for the Bible not to teach about hell. We don't like the idea of hell. It's unpleasant. And and obviously, we should not come to the doctrine of hell lightly. We should come with tears and weeping and mourning. Some people may not like what the Bible says about human sexuality, about God's plan for marriage and how it needs to be between one man and one woman for a lifetime and how homosexual activity is sinful before God and premarital sex and fornication you may come to the text with with emotion saying well I don't want to accept that or you may come to this text of scripture and say you know what I, I really struggle with Jesus being the only way of salvation I, I see all these other different ways and and how can Christianity say that this is the exclusive way and that, that we're right and everybody else is wrong. That just doesn't set well with me. So whatever doctrine it is, you come to the scriptures with the preconceived notion of emotion and, and of background and of bias and prejudices, and you come to the scriptures and you sometimes want the scriptures to say something different than what they say. And if you're truly going to be an obedient, Bible-believing Christian, you have to submit to the text of Scripture over whatever emotion you're experiencing at the time. Now, I'm not trying to invalidate your emotions. I'm not trying to say you shouldn't have those emotions and that you shouldn't struggle. I understand that. But yet, we've got to submit to the Scriptures as an authority over us as opposed to us being an authority over the scriptures. And so when we come to the doctrine of election, predestination, there are so many emotions that come into play, and there's people I've heard over the years that say, I just, I can't accept this, or I won't accept this, or I I see it right in front of me, but I just don't want to accept it. I remember having a conversation, with somebody. Many years back, and I think I was doing a teaching through the, the book of Romans, and we got to Romans chapter 9, and, the, and I could see the, the, the struggle on the face of this individual when I'm teaching, and I, I could see the body language, that they were just wrestling. And then, you know, afterwards, they came up and talked to me, and, and they were really struggling. And, and these were the words out of their mouth, if I remember correctly. I see it right in front of me in black and white, but I can't accept it. I know it must be true because it's in the Bible, but I'm just not willing to accept it. And so sometimes we have those emotions. We see the truth right before our eyes. We cognitively understand it. It's not that we don't understand it. We understand it perfectly. We see the logic. We see the flow. We see what the text teaches. We see the truth staring us in the face. The problem is, are we willing to accept it, internalize it, and live with the reality that that's the truth? And a lot of people come to the doctrine of election, and they they struggle with that. And I understand that struggle. But as I've gone through the Gospel of John, it's become so clear that these are the words of Jesus This is not Pauline theology. This is not in the epistles. These are the words of Jesus. And so you've got to struggle with what Jesus teaches about the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of election. These come from his own words, and they're very strong. I don't don't think anywhere else in the Bible do you find Jesus saying, or or anybody saying, the reason you're not believing is because your father's the devil. The reason you're not hearing is because you're not of God. The reason you're not believing is because you're not my sheep. Those are strong words, and only Jesus can say that because he knows at that time that he's talking to the audience because he's omniscient. He knows whom the Father has given him. Now, we don't. We can't play Jesus. We can't go up to somebody and say, hey, the reason you're not believing is because you're not of the flock. We don't know that. Our only responsibility is to share the gospel with everybody we come in contact with, and then the gospel will go forth in power, and and the sheep will hear his voice, and the sheep will come. Let me just address those of you that may lean towards Arminianism or have a higher view of free will. Let me just um, challenge you to say, even if you believe that God chose based upon foreseen faith, and the person uses their free will to come, you still can't control their response. You still can't control what they're going to do. So, even if God has chosen someone for salvation because of his sovereignty, or they use their free will, at the end of the day, their decision is still out of your hands. What's the one thing you can control? You can control whether you share the gospel with them and you pray for them. I had a person come up to me after the service yesterday, and, and they said, man, thanks for the sermon. It, I, you were really strong and in, 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 um, eternal security and I really appreciate that but then he asked a question he goes if god has already elected who will come then do my prayers really matter because can I can I save somebody by my prayers no matter how hard i pray for them if they're not among the elect will they ever come which is a great question a very great question and what i said to this person was we don't know the identity of the elect We don't know who the sheep are, and so every single person in our lives we see as a candidate for the gospel. So God uses means to bring about his ends. God has told us in Romans 10, how are they going to hear unless somebody preaches to them? So we need to preach the gospel. That's the means God uses to call out his elect. And God also uses prayer as a means to bring about his ordained ends. And so God may be using your prayers for that lost person as a means to bring them to salvation. So I told him, keep praying for those lost people. Keep praying. You don't ever know if they're going to come to faith or not, but one thing you can do is pray, uh, weep on your knees, beg God for their salvation, plead with God for their salvation, ask God to open the eyes of their heart, continue to share the gospel with them, have a burden for them, love them, and pray that God would grant them repentance and faith. And that's what we need to do we need to have a passion for souls we need to have a a heartbreak uh, a longing for um for souls or as even as charles spurgeon said uh, to, to be um jealous for souls in the sense that we desire so much for god to save lost people that we will not stop praying and weeping and sharing the gospel we never want to be cold calculating calvinist who could care less about lost people that's antithetical to the doctrines of grace we don't know the identity of the elect and so every person that we come in contact with is a sinner in need of a savior that's what we know. Everybody we come in contact is a sinner in need of a savior. And so we need to plead with God for their soul. We need to pray for their salvation. We need to weep over their lostness. We need to beg God to save them. We need to share the gospel with power and with clarity and with compassion and never give up. Now, sometimes you share the gospel with the person over and over again and they reject, they reject. And I've had that question asked to me over the years. When does when, when that point where you just stop? where you don't share the gospel with them anymore. And there are certain times, and Jesus even says, don't cast your your pearls before swine. There comes a point in time where you may just have to say, you know what? I have done all that I can do and I can't share the gospel anymore. I'm not gonna bring it up. But you can still pray for them. You can pray that somebody else can come along and share the gospel. Maybe they're not going to listen to you, but maybe God has ordained another person to come along that they will listen to. So there are certain times where you may just have to stop sharing the gospel because you've met resistance after resistance, and it's just getting to be where you, you may lose that relationship. But you can still pray for their salvation and pray that God would bring somebody else into their life that could share the gospel with them. So the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination is never an excuse for laziness. It's never an excuse for a lack of prayerlessness. It's never an excuse for um, a lack of evangelism. Uh, Let me just tell you a story. When I came to Emmanuel um, 11 years ago, you know, you go through the pastor search committee where the pastor search committee uh, asks you a lot of questions. And so you go through all the gamut of theology and So this was the very first phone interview that I had before I even came out um, to to meet with the committee. And um, they asked me, spent about an hour on the phone asking me all types of questions. And then um, they said, well, do you have any questions for us? And I just wanted to lay my cards on the table and and make sure there was no confusion. And I said it exactly like this. This was the the, the comment I made back to the pastor search committee. I said, how do you guys feel about your next pastor being a five-point Calvinist. I laid it out there. I said, I am a five-point Calvinist. This is my theology. How does your church feel about your next pastor holding to that theology? Because I didn't want to mask it. I didn't want to hide it. And I figured, you know, if they said, no, absolutely not. We're, we're more Arminian-leaning. That, that's a, that's, that's a, no, a deal-breaker. We, we can't go that way. We don't want that. Then that would have been God's will to close the door on that. But that's not the answer I received. The answer I received is all of our previous pastors were strong in the doctrines of grace, and that's not an issue for us. We don't think that's a problem. That's, that's kind of where our church has, you know, kind of been over the years, which was very much of an encouragement to me. So I came out in January of 2005, and I met with the committee, and this was a secret visit to Emmanuel, so you you meet with the committee at someone's home, and you get grilled, and this was where um, Don and I, my wife, you know, we were in one of the elders' homes with the search committee, and that was, back then, it was all the elders, and I think five um, church members, So I think there's like 11 people on this committee, and they're, they're grilling us for about an hour and a half on theology after theology, and, and on character, and on our marriage, and just question after question. It was a great time to really answer a lot of questions, um, and then... You know, we had this, a sneak visit where we got to go to a worship service incognito. Nobody knew who we were just to kind of observe. And, and at that point, um, we, we really felt very confident this is where God was leading us. And so um, we were basically said, you know, at, we left that, that weekend and they said, well, let's pray about it, you pray about it. And we felt very confident. Well, about a week later, I get a call from the chairman of the, the search committee. And he says, you know, we want you to come back out to Emmanuel for one more um, meeting, because there's one person on the committee who has a problem with your Calvinism. He goes, nobody else on the committee does, but there's one on the committee that's really, really concerned about your Calvinism, and and, and we're not, it's not a big deal, but but would you please come back out and, and address that issue? And so I said, sure. So this was actually on Valentine's Day, of all days, of 2005, I drove from Colorado Springs, um, it's about a three-hour drive, out to Sterling, and sat down with the committee, and, and they, they asked me, you know, tell us more about your Calvinism, and I said, listen, if I could describe myself, I would be a compassionate Calvinist. Um, yes, I believe strongly in the doctrines of grace, but that does not mean that I will not leave this church to pray like crazy for lost people. This does not mean that I won't do evangelism or I won't strongly preach the gospel. I will preach the gospel. I will lead the church to be evangelistic. I will lead the church to do church planning. I will lead the church to be um, involved in missions. We're not going to abandon those truths because of my Calvinism. And so they asked me to leave the room, and um, they talked for a little bit and uh, came back. And they, that's when they said, we feel confident that you are our next pastor. It was a very sweet time where the entire committee prayed around me and then they invited Don and me and my family to come out a few months later in what we call it in view of a call to actually preach before the church and for the church to vote on me. And obviously, um, you know, here I am 11 years later. And one thing that's very interesting is that when I got to the church, that individual that was on the search committee come to find out um, and he's a great guy, a great man of God, and um, his his son and my son were same age, and um, just come to find out in talking with him that he is an Arminian, uh, not just a traditional Southern Baptist. He's really more of a five-point Arminian, and that's why he struggled on that search committee. Um, he believed you could lose your salvation. He um, was just very, very um, open to, to, to Arminian theology, and and, and after about four or five years, actually I think it's probably about five years, at the church, um, he and his family elected to leave. And they left graciously, and basically he said to me, the reason we're leaving is because, you know, I'm Arminian and you're Calvinist, and I mean, I really, I can't have my family senator this teaching, and I totally understood, and they're in a healthy church now, and it, it's a great situation. And so uh, that, that was that. But the point is, I laid my cards out on the table before it even started. And here's the thing. Um, When I came to Emmanuel, we have done a lot in evangelism. We have planted churches. We've adopted an unreached people group in India. We've taken mission trips. We have done um, outreaches at a thing called Sugar Beet Days, which is a festival here in town where we give out tracts and water. We've done evangelism at the rest stop. We have a county fair where we've done evangelism. We've done um, different types of Christianity Explored. We have pray for lost people last night in prayer meeting. We prayed specifically for lost people by name. Uh, we, We have done everything that we can do in our power to share the gospel and pray. And so I just don't want anybody to accuse me as a pastor, of not being evangelistic or praying for lost people. And those that know me and those that have been here for 11 years uh, can say that that's never been an issue. That, yes, we believe strongly in the sovereignty of God, but it's never stopped us from sharing the gospel, uh, preaching the gospel, doing evangelism, doing missions, going on mission trips, um, doing outreach in the community. That's the heartbeat of, of our church. About two years into my ministry at Emmanuel. Um, I had a family that was a little upset with me because they felt like I was not evangelistic enough. And they never came and talked to me about this, and that's often what happens in churches. And so, by the way, if you're listening to this and you're in a church, never go to your pastor and say this, there's a lot of people who are concerned about this. Usually when a pastor hears there's a lot of people that are concerned about this, usually what that means is it's that person and their spouse and maybe one other person. But they like to come in and say, there's a lot of people that are struggling with this. Don't ever say that to your pastor. (laughs) If you're struggling with it, just say, I'm struggling with this. Uh, Don't build coalitions against your pastor. Um, Just be be honest. But anyway, this family never came to me, but they shared it with another family. And this other family came to me and said, yeah, they believe that you're just not very evangelistic. You don't present the gospel. And And I was hurt by that because I'm like, I don't present the gospel. I'm not evangelistic. I'm Every Sunday, I'm pouring my heart out. I'm inviting people to come to Christ. I'm commanding people to repent and believe. I'm clearly preaching Christ and Him crucified. What do you mean I'm not preaching the gospel? I, I mean, what, what's going on here? What I found out was their idea of me preaching the gospel was I wasn't giving a public altar call at the end of the service to call people forward. In their mind, they equated that with preaching the gospel. And so they weren't looking at the totality of the sermons where every sermon was Christ-centered and calling people to repentance and faith. In their minds, evangelism equated having an altar call, calling people to come forward. And so, you know, you're going to deal with those issues in church life where there's differences of philosophy over methodologies, but it all comes back to what Jesus says, the sheep hear his voice and they follow me. Now this should give us great confidence anytime we do evangelism. Anytime we go to India and to an unreached people group into a village, or we go anywhere in the world where we're sharing the gospel, we can go with confidence. and what confidence do we have? If there are sheep scattered out there and we come into contact with one of the sheep, they will hear the voice of the shepherd, and they will come. Now, it may not be the first time that they hear the gospel, and it may not be they come when you share it, but if they are the sheep, they will come. All the Father gives me will come. They will emphatically definitely come. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They will follow. So we have the confidence to go out in the power of the gospel, present it, and know that the sheep hear his voice, and they will follow. Revelation 13.8. John is talking about the mark of the beast and those who've taken the mark, and we can get into a whole conversation about the identity of the beast. Revelation 13 tells us it's the beast from the sea, probably a personification of a world system that's set against God and his people, probably manifested in an end times person, the man of sin. But listen to Revelation 13.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship it the beast. Now, earth dwellers in the gospel or in the book of Revelation, John repeatedly uses this term those who dwell on the earth, earth dwellers. That is a metaphor for lost people, those who don't repent, those that are tied to this world system, as opposed to those who've been sealed on their foreheads, as opposed to those who've been clothed in white garments, as opposed to God's people. There's this dichotomy going on in the book of Revelation between earth dwellers and those who are believers. And so what does John say? All who dwell on the earth will worship it, the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain so here's the issue and this is the same john that's recording jesus's words in the gospel of john when were these people's names written in the lamb's book of life it was written before the foundation of the world you know i've heard pastors over the years from a more Arminian background, say when you come forward and you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, God has written your name in the Lamb's book of life. Well, what does the scripture say here? Your name was written before the foundation of the world, which means that God made the choice before the foundation of the world. God wrote your name in that book before the foundation of the world. God gave you to Jesus before the foundation of the world. You're a sheep that was given by the Father to Jesus before the foundation of the world. You are one of the sheep that belongs to the shepherd and your name was written there before the earth was created. And sometimes you wonder why. Why does God choose Well, for the Arminian and for the corporate view of election, their answer is the reason God chose is because you chose God. God looked down through the corridors of time. He saw you choosing. That's why God chose you. You chose Christ, and therefore God foresaw that and chose you. For those of us that are Calvinists, we don't really know why God chose us. It wasn't because there was anything in us that moved God to do that. It wasn't because we were better than anybody else or more spiritual or more receptive or more righteous. Every single person is dead in Adam, dead in sin, undeserving of god's love nobody deserves god's grace god is not obligated to give it to anybody and so why he chooses to save some and not others is a great mystery all we know is ephesians says it's according to the purpose of his will it's his good pleasure to do so we don't obligate god to do that we don't arm twist god to do that God is not beholden to us to do that. He does it because of the good purpose of his will. We have a little glimpse into this in how he chose the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, 6 through 8, God is speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God choose Israel? Well, he says it's not because you were great, it's not because you were more, it's not because you were some great people that deserved it, Two things, really, that God says here. Number one, it's because I love you. And number two, it's because I'm in covenant with you. I I swore a covenant oath with you, Israel, and it's because I love you that I chose you. Now, by extension, we can say that we are the chosen people of God because Peter says we're a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, a a treasured possession, that God's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why has God chosen us? Because God made a covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world. God the Father, Jesus the Son, entered into the covenant of redemption where God gave Jesus a people. And Jesus would come and die for those people. And those people would come. And so there's the eternal covenant of redemption between Father and Son where the two agreed in eternity past to secure the salvation of the sheep because they love the sheep. Why did God choose you for salvation? Well, the reason is not because there was anything good in you. It's not because you were righteous. It's not because of your resume. It's not because God looked down and said, hey, you are so glorious. You are so righteous. You're so deserving. It's simply because God chose to do so because he's God. It was for the good pleasure of his will It was because God set his electing love on you before the foundation of the world, and it's because in the eternal covenant of redemption, the Father gave you to the Son. And I can't explain that. I don't know why. And so what we do at the end of the day is we fall on our knees and worship. All we can do is worship. There was nothing in us to move God to choose us. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. God's not obligated. That's why it's called grace. You see, grace ceases to be grace if God is somehow obligated to give it. If God looked down through the corridors of time and saw you choosing him, then there would be a reason why God chose you. He would be obligated because he saw something. And that's not grace. Grace. Grace means God is under no obligation whatsoever. The only thing God is obligated to do because of his holy nature is to punish every single one of us in hell. That's the obligation because of God's moral law. To be true to his moral law, God does not let the guilty go unpunished, but he shows mercy, he shows grace, he shows unmerited favor to many upon many who do not deserve it simply because it's his good pleasure to do so, I quoted this in my sermon on Sunday, but it's worth repeating. It's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself Why he should have looked upon me with special love. I resonate with Charles Spurgeon's words. I can't find any reason why God would choose me. There's nothing in me, there was nothing I did. I was dead in my sins. I was a rebel, hostile to God, alienated in my mind, not submitting to God's law, not able to come to Christ. And all I can do is rest in the joy that before the foundation of the world the Father gave me to Jesus as a sheep for reasons I don't know. And at a time when the shepherd called to me in 1979 I heard the voice of the shepherd I followed and no one can pluck me out of his hand. And I'm so grateful for God's sovereign grace in my salvation. Because like Spurgeon, I know there's nothing in me that would move God to do that. It's simply his special love. This doctrine of election, as our friend Art Azerdia has often said, is a soft pillow to lay your head on at night. It's not something to be afraid of. It's not something to run from. It's not something to bristle against. It's a precious doctrine to be cherished, to be secure in, and to know from first to last, God Almighty has secured your salvation. I thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. It's sobering to think about the sovereign election of God in our lives, and I pray that this podcast today has been an encouragement to you. I do thank you for being a regular listener. If you are, uh, if you want to share this podcast on social media, through Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or or through email, however you want to share this. If you feel like there's somebody in your life that would benefit from this, I would greatly appreciate you sharing this information. You can go to seancole.net and get my contact information if you want to contact me with some questions. Um, Also, if you want to go to iTunes and give us a review and rating, that really helps us to get more exposure. And so, again, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. like I say every week, every time, Um, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. Until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.